Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Consequence Podcast Network. Port Arthur, Texas. Port Arthur, Texas, for lack of a better word, I guess, smells? It's an oil refinery town, and it smells like somewhere oil is refined. When I was growing up, there was a steel mill in our neighborhood, and until it shut down in the 80s, it smelled too. It smelled like somewhere where Steel was milled? It's not a read. It's just true about most residential industrial areas. There's smoke and chemicals and friction and fire, and the air soaks it all in, and it gets everywhere. It surrounds everything. So much so that if you live in a place like that, you don't even notice it. It just is. Until you go someplace else. Until you leave the place that you're from, you don't know that everywhere doesn't smell. Janice Joplin is from Port Arthur, Texas. It's a town of industry and family. It's on the water. It's hot. It's a lot of things. But what it wasn't in the late 1950s and early 1960s was a hotbed of art and music. And when the Cultural Revolution came calling, Port Arthur didn't exactly accept the charges. That's a collect call joke. You don't, the kids don't know. But that didn't mean that Janice's life was devoid of culture or of art. It didn't mean that she was stifled or unsupported. It just meant that she would eventually have to find out that some places smelled different. Now, by the time the public got to know her, what they saw was a wild woman with feathers in her unbrushed hair and satin, velvet, heels or maybe barefoot. But to her family, she was a wild child who'd gotten out of Port Arthur. In this episode of The Opus, 
we're going to hear from Seth and Dorothy Joplin's two youngest children, Laura and Michael. They were great. They do great work in preserving Janice's legacy. And I wanted to talk to them about their older sister. So many people at the time and so many more now admired Janice. But who was Janice when she was at home? And how did she fit into a refinery town when her tastes in music and art were refined in a very different way? For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is the Opus. KJK, heavy sigh. I had this great roommate who was from Kansas. And one year for her birthday, I got her a t-shirt that read, Not everything in Kansas is flat. Which is so classy. (laughs) But this was in a time where novelty t-shirts were both age-appropriate and fashion-forward. So it was fun. I ended up, much, much later, marrying a man from a different part of Kansas. But when people are done with their Wizard of Oz jokes, they always say something about how flat it must be. There's probably a whole nother podcast somewhere about Midwesterners and our obsession with elevation, or the lack thereof. And as a Midwesterner, I think we're always just hoping someone else's landscape will make ours look more interesting by comparison. I mean, sure, we have skyscrapers here. I'm in Chicago. But, you know. You drive out of the city, and you can see everything in every direction. But the Joplins will tell you first thing, that their town has all of us beat. My fellow sea-level dwellers... Let's turn our sights to the south. Port Arthur makes Topeka look like Denver. Here's Laura Joplin. She's Janice's sister. She's about six years younger than Janice, the middle child. She's also the author of a biography called Dear Janice, which was the basis of the documentary Janice, Little Girl Blue. It's flat. Yes. Anything you see is just flat. And it's a petroleum uh, manufacturing area. That's our primary uh, business. So everybody worked for it directly or indirectly, which meant uh, it frequently uh, smelled pretty bad because there'd be some disruption of this or that. And the unions would be on strike or not. And, you know, so in other words, it was a a one uh, business town. See? I wasn't making up the part about the town smelling weird. So don't come for me, Texas. I wasn't messing with you. We're hearing from Michael Joplin. He's Janice's youngest brother. Ten years younger. 
I mean, it was flat as a pancake, and the high point was the overpass, you know, and we would go watch the sunset. But when you're up there, you see the oil refineries as far as you could see, and they were burning off excess gas on these pipes, and so it would be lit up like crazy all, you know, just this beautiful. It was actually stunning, and it very water-oriented. I mean, there was marsh, country, hardcore. You couldn't really walk out into the country you die you know we just kind of sink into the mud yeah you know it smelled really bad because of all the oil refinery but i didn't know you know it's just the way it was hot and humid a lot of mosquitoes (laughs) i love this picture they're painting i mean i just do it's got something for all of the senses they lived in this this tidy pink framed house in a really in a nice neighborhood you know Seth Joplin, he did work in the oil business. It was really difficult not to. Dorothy Joplin worked at a business college, and while their home wasn't one where Janice heard a lot of modern music, it was a home where expression was valued. It was an unwritten rule that we all sat at the dinner table together and that everybody spoke. It didn't matter how old you were, if you weren't, Uh, yet old enough to sit at a chair, you were put on top of two very thick uh, century dictionaries uh, so that you could be equal with everybody. And our parents made a deliberate decision to ask the children questions, and they listened, even if you were four, you know, uh, to try to encourage people to understand they could express themselves and that people would listen. We were taught the value of the word, of the actual word. And uh, Pop would do a, we had these big Oxford dictionaries, these double dictionaries, you know, know, A through J, you know, and these huge things. And every, every night at dinner, he'd open up one of them and just randomly point and here's the word that you need to use today, you know, and you have to use it during dinner. You know, just these things. It's some random mountain in Iraq, you know, like <laughs> just whatever. And uh, so it, it gave all of us an innate love of the actual word. So that uh, we were all av- are all avid readers. Janice was reading the whole time. There was always a paperback in her purse, you know, just that kind of thing. Their memories come with their own unique points of view. But one thing... Both Joplin siblings want to make clear, and something that their parents have wanted to make clear since the 70s, is that all of the kids, including Janice, grew up loved and supported. Seth, in an interview from back then, said, I've seen stories that said she ran away from home when she was 11 or 14 or 17, but she left home with our approval and our funds. He continued, she was never alienated from the family. Although we disagreed with the way she lived, she liked us and we liked her. She came back more than I would have thought. In this world, if you bring the papers down, you know everybody's fighting on with each other. Count on 
don't think anyone would have really blamed Janice if she didn't come home all that often. We've established that the Joplin family was straight up lovely. Nice people, loved words, I'm here for it. But her peers at the time were mostly trash. There, I said it. I don't like bullies. Don't care for it. There's a story of a now famous former NFL coach slash current broadcaster who was a schoolmate of Janice's, who was relentless in his teasing. It's not the only reason I never care for his team, but it's certainly one of them. Janice was the belle of the ball in a lot of the creative spaces she'd found in California, but in grade school and at Thomas Jefferson High, Janice was decidedly an outcast. She was in clubs and things. It was like in the glee club and stuff. But she'd skipped a grade. Look at the big brain on Janice. But it meant that she was young for her grade. Her parents thought that that may have contributed to the, the catching up that she may have had to do socially. And when she was 14, she started dressing differently. That's the age when kids do that. But... In the 1950s, whew, good luck, girl. And by her senior year, she identified with the Beatniks, which led to a lot of music discovery. Good for her. But all of this in Texas, in the 50s, of course, had this ribbon of racial segregation baked right in. Laura will tell you about it. My senior year of high school, the town was formally integrated because Martin Luther King's people came in and said, either integrate or you're going to have a big problem. And so they said, okay. So my class of 676 students had 10 black students. And only one of them stayed to graduate. But it was the beginning. And uh, it did evolve, I think, fairly quickly to be more integrated. By the time my brother was there, I think it was more integrated. Uh, It it was the South. There's one thing that I think is important about Janice. Because uh, she, she had problems in high school. And so she ended up finding social problems. Um, she had some small group of girlfriends, but she really hung out with this group of guys and they were intellectuals and they read uh, literature and listened to different types of music and they would drive around in the car together, listening to the radio. They'd go across the river together, you know, but uh, that helped her get into music and, and a culture in a different way. One of the things that those people did, uh, there was Houston Avenue was a kind of a dividing line, white and black, and it was an area where there were a lot of nightclubs. Uh, Port Arthur was a big petroleum refining area and an international port. So uh, the town tried to have social areas that would attract the sailors rather than have the sailors get into, you know, the good parts of town. So they had Houston Avenue, which was, you know, whorehouses and bars and food and music and all kinds of stuff. Well, Janice and her friends were into all those things. So as a group, 
they would go down when they heard a particular musician was in town or something. And there were some really good blues clubs where you could go. And, and Janice hung out there a lot, even though her guy friends were a year older than her. Even when she was a senior in high school, she was still going down there and absorbing a lot about the music that she later got into. Meeting new people. Hanging out with the blacks. <laughs> it was all very exciting. And she learned so much musically socially and she wanted to share with some of the few people she knew who would listen here's michael (laughs) she would be playing and she's singing some woody guthrie thing you know and you go wow how did you get to that you know and because she liked the message and that was an important it it had meaning to her her uh, being drawn to that didn't surprise me at all. I, you know, it never even, didn't even bat, make me bat an eye. Just like, oh, cool. Okay. You know, oh, that's a good one. You know, I haven't heard that. And, you know, that kind of stuff. So she would turn us on and then we'd listen to that. Yeah. You know, have an album at the house. Oh, Joan Baez, you know, she didn't like Bob too much, but I just remember that. One of the only parts I really miss about being in high school, about being a teenager, was how much I loved things, how obsessed I would get about a new band or a song, and how excited I would get to discover something cool. And when you come across music that finally speaks to you, there's really nothing like it. You're like this sponge, and sometimes, like a sponge, you absorb too much, and it starts to spill out and for most of us and for Janice at first that spillage I guess just stays within our circles of our family and our friends but Janice's voice and her tastes the evolution of herself which is too much for that circle too much for Port Arthur as it turns out, too much for Texas, or the South. But don't forget, she came home when she could. She always wrote. I really, really, truly believe that if Janice wasn't gifted or motivated enough to have become a successful singer and songwriter and performer, that she would have made a really great music writer. Like, I I, I feel that Rolling Stone would have found a place for her writing. She's really good. She's so passionate and interested in the music that moved her. From the Odetta that she discovered during her beatnik phase to Chris Christofferson, who, let it be said, was a great songwriter, but also that Janice thought he was cute. And she wasn't wrong. I know I said that in the last episode, but he was really cute. And she'd tell anyone who would listen about what she loved. She was a vocal cheerleader with a knack for words. It's apparent in her lyrics, 
but it's also there on the pages of the letters that she wrote home to her family in Port Arthur. These letters, by the way, were PG. Mom and dad and little bro and little sis were going to be reading. But still, they were really funny and really sweet and really involved. And Michael and Laura and Dorothy and Seth looked forward to them. They were addressed to families unit, and we would get a 12-page letter. I mean, you know, handwritten in ink and, you know, just sitting there. And we would read them all at dinner and passing around, you know. And then we'd all write back way before email. So you were, and and actually way before uh, making long-distance phone calls because they were, like, expensive, you know. And uh, so nobody's going to do that. You know, it had to be something important to do a long-distance call. I mean, something health-oriented or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Dire. Otherwise, you just write it. So looking at those, you know, like... 30 years after her death, uh, mom said to Laura, you know, I have all these letters of Janice's. Do you want to read them? You know, like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> holding out on us. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, you know, she just kept, you know, it was like a mom, you know. It wasn't, you know, she was just keeping letters in the drawer in, the, in a box in the closet, you know, one of those things. Oh, we got a letter, and everybody, you know, get together and read it individually and talk about it at dinner, and, you know, uh, there, there was a lot of desire and connection and, and enjoy and enjoyment, and she would come home, you know, for Christmas or when things got too tough somewhere, she'd come up, come home. Were the stories of, of her life shocking to you at the time, or did she keep that part? under the best. <laughs> I was six years younger than her and I was not included in the real information really till much later. Sure. I mean, the book Love Janice, I wrote, I really think I wrote it because no one would tell me what was going on and I knew <laughs> something was going on and I wanted to know. Of course she wanted to know. Laura's book lays it all out there. And Janice was living arguably one of the most interesting lives of anyone I can think of at the time. And she was finally loved by her peers. She'd finally found a big group that got her. And with Pearl, she was finally, finally getting to make the album that her entire life's experience had provided the material for she was stoked. She was thrilled with the new band. And I think that on hearing the music, you realize, you know, she'd put something very different together. And there was so much power. And her, her voice and her stories were all about the excitement of the sound and loving the band that she's finally found uh, a group that she can work with that helps her. Now, I, I think it was fundamentally a shift. Janice was making her dream album. She wasn't making her final album. Not as far as she knew. And she was looking forward to sharing it with the world. Michael was nearing the end of his high school career in 1970. He was, of course, like most 
American young men at the time worried about the draft. But he was also concerned about his sister. You can do both. Her letters home were some of her experiences, but he had access to a newsstand. And the media told bigger stories than the one she kind of sanitized to send home. Not all of them were true or fair, but they all told a story of a life of excess. But he knew his sister well enough and loved her enough to believe her when she told him about the future she wanted, about her excitement for this album and the tour, and how much fun it would be if he joined her. Of course, the draft. It's breathing down your neck. The Vietnam War was the story. The draft was the story. But maybe he could just take his sister up on a very generous offer. Uh, Janice said, come on tour with me. You know, after you graduate high school, we're going to go, you're going to go tour with me. You can be a roadie. And, uh, you know, like I was, that was my aspiration at the time, you know, to go be on tour. And it just seemed like, you know, women and it'd be awesome. You know, I'd have a great time. Now, the Joplin family did get the opportunity before Janice died to see her play live. (laughs) And I don't know, it's always weird when your folks show up to the gig. Especially if your onstage persona isn't your dinner table persona. Especially if your folks don't know how other people see you. But they did. They got to go. They got to see her. Here's Michael talking about his experience at the Janis Joplin show. We went to see her in Houston and uh, as a family. And that was, uh, I'm, you know, she got us great seats. We're on the front row or whatever, you know. And, uh, and I'm looking back like, oh, my God. You know, I hardly watched her at all because it's like, well, it's just Janice. It didn't, like, you know, she had some goofy clothes on, whatever. You know, I'm just like, uh, <laughs> you know, why, everybody's paying attention, you know, and that was fascinating. And Port Arthur, she wasn't that big other than being a local celebrity because the music was still kind of twangy and a little bit uh, country, uh, not even much blues or anything, but that was the radio. But the first time I heard her on the radio was fascinating. And you know, I'm at work at Baskin Robbins and my sister comes on the radio, you know, like freaking awesome. Uh, the parents though, were definitely worried, very proud and definitely worried. And here's Laura. My parents just had to see for themselves that she was okay. And, I, I remember sitting in the audience. It wasn't Hugh's audience, and, and we'd gone early, and, you know, sitting on the floor. And I remember having on a navy blue Dacron double-knit dress, the only person in a dress in the audience, <laughs> <laughs> and, and just watching. And you could see because people were dressed differently and their hair was different, and, and the music on stage wasn't, you know, it, it was tight and it was together and it was powerful, but it, it wasn't the same as uh, the type of music that came on the radio in Port Arthur. So you could see the, the new and the different. And what was so special is that you could see in her face this incredible joy 
elation, power, freedom, that she'd found a place for herself and she loved it. And she loved the fact that the parents would come out. And I, I do remember, I think, my parents talking together somewhere after that saying, you know, I don't think we're going to have much influence anymore. <laughs> so they knew what she could do. And I'm so, so glad that they were able to witness it firsthand. The letters couldn't have accurately portrayed what she was like on stage. You know, we didn't have YouTube back then. I know. I know. So it makes me really glad to know that the people who knew her the best got to see her do what she did best. You know, most big times when somebody in your family dies, they kind of go away, and, you know, uh, after a while. And there's memories, fun, remembrances and all that. Uh, you know, but I'm here 50 years later, and uh, I'm an old guy now, and we're sitting there talking about this, and it's utterly weird, you know. Uh, but all these guys that knew her, like Chris and the band guys, and from full tilt, from every band, like protect her like crazy. Uh, you know, if they get requested for interviews, they, is it okay if I talk to these people? And I go, hey, you know, I talk to everyone. you want. I've never said no. You know, I just, they just, this protection thing. And, and it's so heartwarming in so many respects like that, that uh, I, I felt she's protected without us doing anything. I mean, she slept around. She did massive amounts of drugs. She died of a drug overdose. What am I protecting? You know, know, her reputation is half her fame. Joan Jett would make it known a whole decade later that she didn't give a damn about her bad reputation. I don't know if Janice ever said those words. But she lived those words. Losing a sibling is a very unique pain. And everybody was so young. That's, that's an even more unique pain. But Laura and Michael and their parents, Seth and Dorothy, got Janice longer than any of the rest of us. Lucky... Her fans lost her public persona, but her family lost all of her. The talent, the quirks, the rebellion, the prose, and the love. In the next episode of The Opus, we'll talk about the last days of Pearl and the last days of Janice. And what becomes of an album when its artist is gone, but the public's desire... Is bigger than ever. Let me leave you with one last story from Michael that I think would crack Janice the hell up. This guy ran up to me at some events and 
oh, you got to see my new tattoo. I got a tattoo of your sister. And uh, he showed me this giant thing on his arm, but it's uh, my sister naked. And uh, oh, with know, the, the necklaces and everything? Yeah. Oh, it's, know, it's sitting on right. my desk right now. Okay. I mean, it's a famous <laughs> thing. It's beautiful, you know. And I go, wow, that's awesome. Do you have any pictures of your naked sister you can send me? And, uh, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> okay, it cracked me up anyway. And I hope you thought it was funny, too. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. I'll see you next time. Drinks are on Pearl. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska Podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the Boss Tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network.